You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on demand platform you can watch anywhere. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Here's what's coming up on this edition of My Life in Four Trades. China has become a lot darker place over the last 20 years. Uh, I think 20 years ago, we were in a situation where I basically could get myself out of anything with enough phone calls. 10 years ago, phone calls wouldn't do it, but money would. Now. God only knows. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Anne Stevenson-Yang, the co-founder of J Capital Research, an activist long and short research firm. Anne's a former journalist and is a highly regarded investment research analyst with a focus on China and is known for predicting the Evergrande collapse. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Maggie. Tell us a little bit about your background. You know, where did you grow up? What were you? What was the young Ann Stevenson Yang like? Hmm. Well, I'm. I'm just. I grew up in Washington D.C. I was uh, very taken with socialism. Uh, it took getting to China to realize how stupid that was. But um, but I wanted to go to China because I believed in the in the Maoist model. It, it took about one day to be disabused of that. But anyway, that's why I went in the first place. And then I got married and stuck around. So that's been, you know, professionally, I'm kind of a mutt here and there. So you, so how long did you, you went to China? It sounds like what, in your, in your twenties? All in all, I lived there about 25 years. Wow. And a lot changed in China over that time too. That's what people keep saying. I mean, a lot changed topographically. I'm not really sure a lot changed internally or the way the place works. Ah, well, and so this is, this is, I think interesting and will be important later when we start to dig into some of your trades, because for a lot of people, China is very hard to understand, very hard to get any kind of you know knowledge on the ground. So clearly, having spent time there, you know, um, I think gives you a probably a unique perspective. Am I, am I right in understanding you didn't you didn't start out with an idea? A social, I guess, someone interested in socialism doesn't start out with the idea that they want to jump into the world of investment and research and financial markets and all that. God, no. <laughs> you know, I, I hooked up with a guy who ran a small brokerage out of Denver in um, 2008 um, or 2007 was when I, when I met the guy. And, and we formed a joint venture in 2008. And I, believe it or not, didn't know what the difference between long and short. I just, I, I never st- traded a stock in my life. I still haven't, to tell the truth. So, so you, so what did you do? Like, what was the early part of your career? Were you, were you doing international relations or studies? What were you, what were you interested in? 
Well, initially I was a, I was a journalist in New York and then, um, I got offered this job in, in, uh, in China because I sp spoke Chinese and I kind of thought, oh my God, I'm a failure in journalism. I'm slumming. I'm going into this, you know, business world. I headed an investment association there. It was actually a great job uh, because, you know, in journalism, you go and meet people and you say, uh, can you tell me about your business? And they're really cagey. And when you're in an investment association, CEOs walk into your office and tell you everything. <laughs> This is the most amazing thing. <laughs> and there I am, you know, madly taking notes. And I knew nothing about business. Like I met probably the China head of Ford Motor Company, and I thought it was FMC, which is a chemical company. So, so I look up at my file, you know, FMC, and I'm ready to talk about chemicals. And he says, uh, Ford Motor Company cars. <laughs> you know, that's how ignorant I was. So it's so interesting because. I was a financial journalist for years, but I also sort of came at it from a sort of unconventional uh, background. I wasn't really interested in business, but I found sometimes that, you know, some, sometimes the less you know, the better questions you ask because you don't assume any prior knowledge. And so you kind of have this blank slate. So you are back in the States when you when you join up or hook up with this person who had a brokerage, how did you, how did you even? No, no, I was actually in China. This is, um, I had been running a, um, an online media company and, um, basically, you know, like, like many startups, we were not paying ourselves and I really needed to earn some money at this point. So, um, I had had breakfast with this guy who was visiting China with his family and I found an excuse to go visit his office in New York. Um, and so, and I sort of presented myself in front of his trader because, you know, I guess you get a nose for money, right? <laughs> so, so I presented myself to his trader and the trader just, you know, trotted me around to all these funds in New York. And I just, you know, blabbed on about China and I guess they liked what they heard. So it was only a couple of months before we signed a joint venture. Wow. So that begins and that that's sort of your entry into financial markets. So let's dive into your financial research, I should say. So let's dive into your trades. And for the purposes of today, the trades are more calls you make about companies rather than sort of, you know, a specific stock trade or a specific commodity trade. Um, and your first is in 2010, 2011, and that is a company called Long Top Financial. So sort of set the scene for this, for us around this. Are you established? Uh, are you, are you sort of just starting out with this business? Where are you and what are you doing when you, when you come across long top? So I'm, I'm doing research on companies and I think of long top as a bad trade or a mistrade because I didn't have enough confidence in myself to, they, they intimidated me. So the, the CFO of that company was a Canadian guy with a lot of, um, a, a lot of street cred among the, among wall street. And, um, and, and, you know, I kept finding little problems with Longtop, and and the the big one was I found out that all of their staff was employed off balance sheet by a third party company, and he, you know, I bring this to him, and he says, 
oh, well, you know, everybody does that. That's ridiculous. And in fact, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And if you even contact me, I'll, I'll, I'll put my lawyers on you. And I was intimidated. <laughs> and mm. I did follow the company quietly, but I didn't like make a big deal of it. And I really should have because it was only, I think, six months, less than six months after that, that the chairman of the company publicly admitted that the, that a billion dollars on the balance sheet was a lie. So why why do you think that you lacked the confidence? Because you sort of knew the facts. You know, did you, is it just because you were just starting out doing that? You know, Wall Street is a very well-heeled group of people, and they have a very strong bias toward uh, liking companies and believing in what they say. And if you are to say anything different, then they get their backs up and um, and and you know ostracize you. And it's it's easy to believe when you're facing a whole room full of of well-educated, well well compensated people. It's really easy to believe that they're right and you're wrong. Um, and so, you know, so, so basically that's why. Yeah. And also there's, there's always that, well, you know, if you see this, why isn't anybody else seeing this? And I suppose that's always the issue when you're making a, a sort of solo call or a contrarian, if you're going against the grain is that, how do you, how do you see this? Yeah, exactly. And there's a sort of, um, you know, with, with long top, there were all sorts of problems with the financial statements, but at core, it was sort of a, a common sense issue. You know, it's what is core bank, what are core banking systems and is long top actually providing that sort of thing? And it clearly wasn't. Um, and, and yet, you know, you have everybody, all of the, all of the banks, all of the iBanks and all of the research shops, you know, putting out this research that says, oh yeah, long top and its core banking system. So you just start to doubt yourself. Yeah. Because it seems like they, they're stating it as fact, right? Exactly. Do you, do you think people don't ask enough questions in general? I mean, do you, at this point, are you, are you thinking of yourself as an, an investigative journalist? Are you thinking of yourself as a, as a researcher? You know, what are you saying you do? I mean, what I say I do as a financial analyst, but I think of myself fundamentally as an investigative journalist. And I think of myself, um, you know, this this may be self-aggrandizement, but I think of myself as champion of the small guy, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there are all those people out there. There, There's, you know, firemen's pensions and teachers' pensions and individual investors who are gulled by these stories and and they're losing money because of them. And Wall Street, generally speaking, is not on their side because Wall Street is is interested in selling more shares and selling more debt. That's that's what they do. That's their job. And their job is not to dis, you know to to show that companies are are lying to the public. So I feel like exposing that is a good thing to do, and that's my job. It can make you some powerful enemies, though. That is true. So is it, so, so let's, what do, what do you think you learned from, from Longport? I mean, it sounds like you learned to not doubt yourself, but what was your takeaway from that? Uh, uh yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple takeaways. One takeaway is just because he's a white guy with a lot of street cred doesn't mean that, that he's telling the truth. Um, 
And there are a lot of CFOs like that who, you know, people believe them because they can talk numbers, because they have a British accent, because, you know, I, I'm sorry to say it, but because they're 35-year-old white guys. Um, and that isn't in itself any reason to believe them. Um, the, I guess the second thing is, you know, just believe the numbers. If the balance sheet doesn't make sense, just believe it. Yeah, affinity bias, right? If they look like us, they sound like us, they have an air of authority. It's easy to... Yeah. And, and also, you know, the, the, when you're lying about cash, ultimately the truth does out. And in that particular case, the event that they, um, the, the thing that they did, what, because they, they have this billion dollars in cash that they don't really have, right? So they're kind of scared of the auditors. So they made this acquisition of a company called Giantstone. And Giantstone had one client, which was the same client that Longtop had. It had you know, no other business. It had, you know, no income. And yet they paid, I forget what they paid. They, they claimed to pay like $700 million for it. I mean, that was just a clear whitewash of a balance sheet. So how is it that these companies get on your radar? Do you find them? Does someone ask you to look into them? I screen. Um, so, you know, you screen for there, there are certain types of red flags. Like if it's in China, if it's a U.S. company or a foreign company and it's based in China, and yet it's it has you know eighty or ninety percent of its cash sitting in China instead of overseas, that's a big red flag, mm -hmm. because it's just something that you wouldn't do as a responsible CFO. So, so it may mean that it's not really there. Um, you scan for outlying margins. Like if you're making some you know widget that's really really kind of common, um, not really a big deal. Like there's, um, you know, maybe you're making, uh, there was a company in, in China called Harbin Electric that made the motors for uh, car seats that push them up and down. This is not a high margin business, right? Uh, there's another, there's a US company I will not name, but always drives me crazy that makes uh, rear view mirrors. These are these are things that you can easily find comparables for where people get gross margins of 19 percent. They don't get 40 percent like this company claims. Mm. So those are those are flags there. They're, first, you look for flags in the financial statements. So your second trade is one of your best, and that's also in 2011, which is interesting. It's sort of the same year, same time frame, and that's China Green Agriculture. So what what made this one different after after the experience uh, that was disappointing, or you know, you felt like you could have done more around Long Top? What made China Green Agriculture stand out to you? Well, with China Green Agriculture, I was trying to launch to relaunch the business on my own. And so I needed to take risk and attract some attention. So this is why I published on this company. The reason the company came across my radar is because in another life, and you know, as a consultant, I had been sent to uh, to to look at that company as a positive. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm making organic organic fertilizer. What a great company! And I walk into the company in Xi'an, 
and the uh, the receptionist doesn't know that it's listed in New York, right? Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I kind of clarify with her the name and find the one guy who's in charge of the listed company. And he comes out and he the story he gives me is like 180 degrees different from the story that the company has published. So I think, yeah, this is not really what they say it is. So, um, so I start to look at that and I eventually visited the factory and they have this little, you know, they're, they're, they're claiming to be an industrial level producer of, of organic advertising or organic uh, fertilizer. And they have this one production line that looks like, you know what a rowing machine looks like? Yeah. It's like, yeah, like that, about that size too, where they put, they put coal into, or, you know not coal, but lignite, you know, that kind of wood stuff into one end and out comes ground up coal or lignite. That's what it was. And I could calculate how many pounds it made a day. And it wasn't anywhere near what China green agriculture said. So you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So this is the the benefit of really kind of having boots on the ground and local knowledge, right? Because you're going in and talking to people. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, you can see things that you can just call BS. There, there was a company called LDK, which made, which was a solar company whose stock was soaring in 2008 through 2010, something like that. And they claimed to have a big polysilicon plant. And I was just really skeptical that it was ever going to actually get off the ground. I got a tour of the plant with the COO, who was uh, an, an Italian American guy who didn't speak Chinese. And we walk through the plant and there's a machine there. It's, and I recognize it as the, um, what do you call those things? Uh, uh, anyway, it, it, it's, it's the key machine that makes the polysilicon and it's got, it's, it's not installed and it has a tag on it from customs saying that it cleared on June 5th or something like that. This is like June 10th. And they have been claiming to be making polysilicon since, since February. Right. So, but he can't read the tag. So th that, that's, that's a useful, that was a useful point at being able to see what, you know, see, see what's in front of your eyes. Absolutely. How did you get access. It's, I mean, you know, I've got to think in China being, you know, a, a woman walking in, poking around on these things is not always that easy. How are you able to get that, that access or how are you able to convince people to talk to you? I mean, you, you can't always get people to talk to you. I do find that, um, that in China, people tend to be a little bit more casual about, um, about companies, you know, internal information. Like I remember very well meeting with the CEO of a company that had recently listed on NASDAQ. I think it's delisted now. And he just, it was the first time I'd ever met him. And I told him I was a stock researcher. We're having lunch. And he tells me that his revenue is only 17%. <laughs> of what, of what he claims. And, and I say, Oh, really? So how did you do that? He said, Oh, if you have cash, then you can, you can pretend you have any type of revenue. And I'm like, 
why would you tell me that? There's a much more casual attitude toward these things in China. Yeah. Well, the the sort of legal framework is different. The repercussions, I guess, for saying stuff like that is not as, you know... There's that. There's also the the sense that, well, everybody's doing it. I mean, really, you know, who takes these investors here? They're only Americans, you know? That's true. So were you nervous about at all? So you, you issue a research report, I suppose, around China green agriculture, disclosing all that you found. Yeah. Um, were you... Was I nervous? Yes, I was nervous. I thought that they, that those Xi'an people might come murder me, <laughs> but um, but I wasn't I wasn't particularly nervous about the rest. You know, I I don't particularly enjoy having a public profile. So so anything that you do publicly makes you nervous. But you know, I think I just made a website by myself and threw it up there. I didn't really expect a lot of people to read it. I was surprised when they did. And so is that, a, is that sort of a turning point for you now? Because in that same year when you felt like you didn't speak up and <clears throat> wished you had more loudly about the other company, about Lookport, you did do it here. So are you starting to get a following now? Is the business taking off because of that, that risk you took around China Green Agriculture? I would say so because 2010, um, people are starting to become aware of all of the uh, the small, you know, 300 to 800 million dollar Chinese frauds that are that are floating around because because basically it became uh, the word went around in China that American investors would buy anything, and there became there there people pulled together small companies that would uh, provide reverse listing services and services to fix your accounts. And, you know, everybody's walking around China, um, organizing groups of potential investors and gathering money before they IPO. So by the time they get out the IPO window and reverse merge into something, they already owe, you know, 10 grandmothers um, a lot of money. So th- they don't have the option of not listing or of, of allowing the stock to drop. And they figure, yeah, it's all Americans anyway. They got plenty of money. And, you know, back then, borrowing stock was, was, a, was, was not as dangerous a thing to do as it is now. Um, I mean, as, as financially risky. And so um, there were a lot of funds that were interested in that. So, yeah, I, I did attract a lot of attention. Were you ever worried about the Chinese government coming after you? Yeah, I may be a little bit too cavalier about this sort of thing, or I was then perhaps, but um, I, I think I know the difference between what's local and what's national. And the local stuff, um, as long as you stay out of that area, uh, doesn't you know doesn't really bother you. You know, somebody in a in a village in Shandong can't really reach over his borders and do anything to you. Um, at the national government level, it can be scarier. Um, China has become a lot darker place over the last 20 years. Uh, I think 20 years ago, we were in a situation where I basically could get myself out of anything with enough phone calls. 10 years ago, phone calls wouldn't do it, but money would. Now, God only knows. Yeah, it's getting it's getting a lot, a lot dicier. Yeah. Are you, are you a risky a person who were you always somebody who takes risks? Because this just strikes me as incredibly, I mean, certainly, if not physically dangerous, which it might be physically dangerous, certainly from an intimidation point of view or um, 
there being retribution for people that are on the other side of uncovering this fraud. I mean, it sounds incredibly risky. Uh, I think it's all right. It's, um, am I, am I a person who takes risks? You know, I'm not one of these people who skydives or finds it, finds it fun to, I don't know, to, to, you know, do parasailing or something like that. Um, but I guess I am driven a lot by, by, uh, by social or, or, uh, but by, by moral outrage, let's say that's probably what drove me to, uh, to a socialist country in the first place. So your third trade is again, one of your bad trades or one of your worst trades. And that's Wirecard in October 2015 to June 2016. So this is over some stretch of time. So set the scene for us around this because now you've been doing this for a while. So I imagine that your business is thriving and that you've had a fair amount of success. Yeah. So Wirecard is a pretty it's pretty clear that Wirecard is a fraud um, be, for a number of reasons, but the the simplest is that it's making a lot of acquisitions that are really, really like unclear, and you know, it, it's unclear what they actually paid for them. They look suspicious. They have a lot of hair on them, um, and when you actually go, like, they made a very big acquisition of a company called GI Retail in in India. I went to India and looked looked at a bunch of Wirecard um, agents and uh, subsidiaries, and they were tiny, tiny, like you know, like these little kiosks you see on the street, and and they were all very secretive, and nobody wanted to talk to you, and. You know, meanwhile, there are like 10 other payment services right around them. And the idea that Wirecard was getting three times the, the margin that these other companies were was just, you know, clearly not the case. The same was true in, you know, we, I or a colleague went to see their, their offices in, uh, or their affiliates in, in South Africa and Singapore in Cambodia, or was it Vietnam, I guess. Um, you know, a whole lot of places and all kind of the same thing. I also spent a lot of time on the phone to things like, you know, brothels in Thailand or um, or casinos in, in the Philippines asking, do you accept Wirecard? And uh, and and also just figuring out, you know, they, they issued at one point a big list of all of these kind of, you know, white shoe type of companies that accepted Wirecard. So I would, you know, look into those one by one and find out, oh, well, they say that Lufthansa takes Wirecard. Actually, it's Lufthansa's Asia real estate subsidiary or something like that. So but but the thing about Wirecard is it took it took a really long time for people to accept the story. And there was one moment when um, I think it was uh, Der Spiegel had written an article about, uh, about, about Wirecard, you know, doubting its, its statements. Um, and that same day I visited a German um, analyst at one of these really huge institutions who managed uh, the portfolio of payments companies. And he hadn't read the Der Spiegel article because he didn't read, you know, stuff like that. So I thought, you know, if these iBank guys are not even going to read the daily paper in their own language on a company they cover, then what hope have I got? So I stopped covering it. And indeed, it took 
three years, almost four years after that for the stock to come apart. So what, what, if you could have done it differently, do you think anything would have changed? You know, what is your, what is the lesson you took out of that? The, um, the, it's no, there's, I don't think there's anything that I would have, would have, uh, done differently because sometimes people just get really, really stuck in Mm -hmm. and they, they refuse to believe anything negative about the company. And, uh, and the company also used a mixture of, uh, of threats and, and legal strategies to keep people quiet if they had negative views. So, you know, was there anything else to do about Wirecard? I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people who knew that it was a fraud and yet never made money on going short the stock. Mm. That's a huge, that's a huge lesson. So in all of this, it's probably worth your, your, the people that you're selling your research to are trying to decide whether to short the stock or to stick with it. And it's legitimate. Um, and that's, that's one of the hardest things, isn't it? You can be right, but, but you, but can you hold out until everybody comes to the, you know, wants to, if everyone wants to stay delusional, it doesn't matter if you're right, I guess. That is correct. And, um, and, and one of the, one of the things that I think I do poorly in this, in this world is, um, you can't, you can't be judgmental. You can't have a moral view about a stock. You just have to look objectively at, at whether it's going to make money or not make money. And, you know, there are plenty of frauds sitting out there that have cash flow and have raised a lot of money and you just can't touch them because that's the way they are. So they, they may make you gnash your teeth, but you can't, you, you, you shouldn't even feel that way. And so that's, that's a place where I need to improve. But that's what motivates you. Your sense of injustice or your desire for justice for the small guy is what motivates you. So how can you ignore it? Yeah, that's correct. But it doesn't mean that you can, I mean, let's just take one small example. There's a whole world of people out there who hate Tesla and are short Tesla. And I would say that in general, I agree with them, but it's probably the most unremunerative short, at least until very recently in the history of the world. So. Yes, absolutely. Is it frustrating? Does it take a lot of discipline to try to, you know, not get, not just scream from your soapbox when you see something that you know is wrong and no one's listening? Yeah. And, um, and, and the more, you know, and, and people can be really abusive about it too. They can start to, you know, they, they, they call you names and the, particularly there, there are a lot of, um, there are particular stocks that, uh, that, that attract a very sort of, uh, a sort of enthusiast group, particularly mining and, uh, biotech. There's a whole class of companies whose whole pitch is, well, two years from now, I'm going to be fantastic. Right. And you can't, you can't know whether that's the case or not. And so they, they develop a lot of, uh, very, very enthusiastic adherents who believe that two years from now story and they get really angry if anybody tries to puncture it. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Do you feel that some of the pushback you've gotten over the years is because you're speaking uncomfortable truths? Do you think that gender plays a role? What do you think? Where do you think it comes from? I mean, since you bring it up, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that there's you know this is you find that in 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 areas of high remuneration right now it's finance and years past it was other areas then um, people people choose other people who look like them so in the finance world you really have very very few people of color and very few women it's basically a, a sort of you know Jim bro culture of 35 year olds who wear fleeces and have an incredibly um, uniform outlook on the world um, and have an incredibly sort of, you know, alpha following uh, way of, of thinking of things. Um, and can that be frustrating? Yeah, because, you know, they, they look at a person like me and they think, oh, well, yeah, kind of academic-y, kind of old, you know, kind of crazy, you know, because that's, that, that's the term they always apply to women that, you know, as, as Tina Fey said, it, women they don't want to sleep with <laughs> are crazy, right? Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of that. Um, there's there's age, there's gender, there's background, you know, there's, um, you know, you didn't, you didn't come out of fidelity, then you must not be a legit person. I think there's uh, often a desire to silence women too. I often see comments all over social media about if you're speaking up. Yeah, there's like, I'm often told that, um, that I'm very blunt, that I'm quote unquote, strong T. And you know, that that's true. On the other hand, if I were male, I don't think anybody would particularly notice. You'd be you'd be applauded for it. Yeah, or at least, you know, oh, just normal, right? So being be asserting yourself is is normal for a man. For a woman, it's considered, you know, you're shrew. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you think that it's harder to do the type of research, to raise red flags now in this environment, given the popularity of, you know, financial social media and the communities that form around it, you would think that more information is power. But do you feel that way? Do you feel you can disseminate those sort of cautionary tales more easily? Or do you feel that people sort of circle the wagons and can be very aggressive when it's not what they want to hear? You know, I, I think of the internet as oxygen. It's not, it doesn't really um, tilt this way or the, or, or another way, but it, it, it fuels whatever fire is burning already. So on one hand, it, the 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 information tools and the reach that people like I like me have now uh, provide you know it, it, they give people like me the ability to to talk to the public directly where it used to be only fidelity and capital and vanguard and so forth that had that ability so of course it really pisses off the majors uh, that that they can be challenged by by a nobody right. So, so that's a that's a positive thing. The negative thing is that people tend to, 
they, they tend to form opinions in swarms like bees, right? Like all of a sudden everybody thinks X and then they all like attack mm -hmm. and all, then they switch and they turn 180 degrees and it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to deal with, you know, emotionally and mentally. Yeah. I can't, I can't even imagine. I, mean, I can't imagine because um, we feel it too, uh, you know, being public facing, but, um, but yeah, it it seems heightened, but it worries me. It worries me when people are trying to express an opinion or tell their truth. You don't have to agree with it, but I would think you'd want the information to sort of test your own theories and hypotheses. But when you present an alternative version of something or say to someone, I, you know, I'm challenging the status quo because I see something, uh, I'm amazed at the backlash. I'm, I'm amazed people don't want to hear what might be true or, or might be a blind spot for them. Yeah, and um, and and you do feel that that resentment is in direct proportion to to irrationality. You know what I mean. So so if um, if somebody has a really strong, well well based opinion, then they're perfectly happy to hear alternative views. But if they don't, if it's based on you know anger and emotion, then they don't want to hear it. That's so smart. That's such a smart observation because I, I think of there's someone who's a guest on with me sometimes um, and he will point out things about Tesla and people freak out. And he's like, listen, it's not personal. I'm just I'm just stating the facts. You know, if it's something about a trading or positions in it or something, I'm just stating the facts. I'm not I'm not making a personal you know statement here one way or the other. I'm a trader. I'm just telling you what I see. And people freak out and, and just attack him on on social media. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The uh, the Tesla adherents are kind of like, I'm sorry to say it, but they're kind of like the AMC apes, you know, they're they're really just not it, it's not about logical investment. It, it's about some kind of idea. So your fourth and final trade is one of your best, and that's Evergrande. And boy, this this is this was a biggie that went down. So what what again? What what made you focus in on that company? Well, I mean Evergrande. I mean there there are a couple of things, but mainly Evergrande is just you know common sense because if you if you live in China and you, I've probably visited, I don't know forty or fifty Evergrande developments. And um, there are so many of them that are just empty, desolate, broken down, chains on the doors. You know, <laughs> there's a quote unquote five star hotel that actually has pigeons in it, and you know is leaking, and you have to walk across boards to get. I mean, it's just, it's just the 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 reality and the and the you know. The, the public statements are so far apart that you just feel like you have to say something about it. There's also, you know, there's also a lot of things tucked away in the financial statements that, um, that, that really give you pause if you were to read them. Um, like it, it has a lot of, um, off balance sheet debt. They do a lot of D and they, they'll call it by different names. Like they'll call it, you know, uh, I forget what they call it, pre-financing for, for mortgage payments or something like that, when really it's just all of these little uh, Chinese uh, small finance companies lending them money. Um, so there's, there's just, 
it's just a huge gap between reality and uh, image in Evergrande. You know, it, it strikes me when you talk about all of them, you're talking about visiting the sites, talking to the workers, going there, looking with your own eyes, asking questions. Are we get? Are we just intellectually lazy anymore? Because I, I'm not even, even when you're talking about just stock picks and so many so many, they've kind of gutted research out of investment banks and so many people don't know who the management is, don't know all the divisions of a company, don't really know everything they're up to, certainly don't read the financials. I mean, have we just become really lazy? I don't think so. I mean, you, you tend not to get such a huge gap um, in, in the United States. You don't get such a huge gap between reality and, uh, and, and company statements. That's something that's very particular to China and maybe a couple of other countries. In the US, you have other types of issues. And you do have this, this syndrome where um, the, the, the companies that are understood are basically on the two coasts. And anybody in the middle is just kind of like, there'll be a tier three bank that covers them. And there's some guy who has a beer with the CFO every month. And that's about it. Um, you know, if I hear one more investment call where it starts, you know, great quarter guys, I really am going to throw up, but you know, I hear it anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, there is a little of both. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of willingness just to just to go with the flow, you know. Whatever they say must be true, um, and what's in it for you anyway. Um, but there's also you know a, a huge inability to see what's actually going on in places like China and India and Russia. Yeah, it, it, it's a lot harder when you're sitting really far away. You just don't have access, open access. Um, do, you, do you think short sellers have a bad rap? So you sort of, you're not shorting yourself, but you're giving information to people who are going to do that. Um, and over the years, somehow the, the idea, I mean, you talk about being motivated by justice for, you know, people who may have their retirement money sitting in a pension fund that might be investing in something that's, which sounds really noble. But then you've had this idea in the press and, you know, in the wake of the great financial crisis that short sellers are bad, that they're trouble, that they're opportunistic, greedy, just trying to wreck companies. Yeah. And, and I do feel that an awful lot of this is just, it, it, it's just the um, challenging a, a, an established business model so it's just been going on for a really long time. So maybe I have to rethink that. But but you know, it's kind of like um, it's like when when uh, when Time Warner started suing uh, Napster because because all of their music was appearing online. And yeah, okay, fine, IPR violations. But you know, get with the program, Time Warner, and your coalition of of companies that that were trying to sell protect the CD market. You know, there's a new model coming along, and you have to figure out how to do it. And sure enough, you know, Tower Records and the CD business are gone, and online music is a big thing. This is this is the same thing with the big banks. It's kind of like back in the 1990s when all of the the companies were sending out their annual reports on paper. Actually, 1980s, but still, you know, people like Warren Buffett had a had a big gap in understanding that they could fill and uh, and take advantage of, and uh, and and then you know the the banks didn't really love that, but you know they eventually got 
got wise to it. And then, um, you know, now this is, this is the new thing since 2000 or so, since 2000, more like 2010, um, you know, there are companies that can break the monopoly of the fidelities of the world or the Morgan Stanley's of the world on information. And they don't like that. No, we're seeing that play out, aren't we? How do you define success? So you, you, you know, you sniff out these companies, you find this information, you want to get it out there publicly. Sometimes, a lot of times people listen, especially now. Um, but, but as you said, there have been some of those instances where you just can't fight the fact that people don't want to face it. So how do you gauge success? Well, but, you know, making money, that, that's the good thing about the stock market is that it's very, um, it's very honest in a certain way. You just, you know, it's the, you can see within, within, you know, months, whether you're correct or not, and it's either correct or incorrect. There isn't anything in between. And if you're correct, you make money off of it. So you just have to have an, an ever more honed sense of what, what makes sense and what works and what doesn't like, you know, how, how liquid a stock has to be so that you don't get trapped in it and what the borrow costs are and how much cash they have. If, if you think they're lying, do they have so much cash that they can just keep the lie up going for, for however long, you know, you have to be clear about those things. Mm. How do you stay humble? I mean, if, 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 if you were a guy, an analyst on wall street, and I don't want to say guy, if you're an analyst on Wall Street at one of the big investment firms and you got this many calls right, you'd be a legend. You'd be the oracle. And yet you sit here and you've certainly saved or made people an awful lot of money, certainly saved when we look at a situation like Evergrande. But, but you, you, you seem so casual about it all. <laughs> that would be, I mean, but, but, you know, you have to, you have to realize that too, in those big banks, you know, if you, if you were a Morgan Stanley analyst and you had a sell on, you know, all these stocks, you'd be bounced out in days, right? Cause that's, that's not your job. Your job is to get people enthusiastic about buying stock and buying debt. Um, so yeah, it's kind of being negative about stuff is, is a little bit thankless. Well, I'm sure that there are an awful lot of people out there who, who don't agree and are very happy that you raised a red flag on all of this. So thank you for all that good work, Anne. <laughs> well, thanks for the nice words, Maggie. All right. That's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.